This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Before beginning today's episode, I want to remind everybody that the full back catalog of Imaginary Worlds has been re released. All 130-something episodes are back on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, if you subscribed to Stitcher Premium, thank you so much. Your contributions help make the show financially sustainable. But I will no longer receive a commission from those subscriptions. So if you could instead redirect your $5 to the Imaginary Worlds Patreon page, I would be hugely grateful. There's a link on my site, imaginaryworldspodcast.org. There's also a link to the show's GoFundMe page if you prefer that instead. But the best way to keep growing the show is to keep expanding the audience. And if there's ever a time to recommend Imaginary Worlds on social media or just to somebody you know who you think might like it, this is a perfect time to do it. I mean, Star Wars is on everyone's mind right now. I've done about eight Star Wars episodes. Doctor Who is back thankfully, and I did a Doctor Who miniseries a few years ago. Or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. That also helps new listeners discover the show. Thanks. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. This month, Patrick Stewart is going to reprise his role as Jean-Luc Picard in the new series, Picard, on CBS All Access. We have an obligation to investigate. There is no we, Jean-Luc. Admiral, I am standing up for the Federation, for what it should still represent. This is no longer your house, Jean-Luc. Go home. I am very excited. As I've mentioned before, The Next Generation is my favorite Star Trek series, although only a few of the actors from The Next Generation will be in Picard. But the show will feature Picard's arch-nemesis, the Borg. And the writers have promised this is going to be a storyline about the Borg we have not seen before. The Borg were the closest thing that Star Trek had to pure villains. They want to assimilate every species into the Borg collective, and you do not want to be a Borg. They're like Frankenstein monsters where all their body parts are stitched together, either from robotic limbs or pieces of other Star Trek species. They fly through the galaxy in these giant cube ships and tell everybody, you will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. And I will resist you with my last ounce of strength. Strength is irrelevant. Resistance is futile. We wish to improve ourselves. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service hours. So, with the Borg returning to pop culture, I wanted to explore why they're so memorable, so durable, and so haunting. So, I decided to assemble a roundtable discussion with three academics who combine science fiction with philosophy. Christina Vallejo, who goes by Chris, and Kevin Decker, both teach at Eastern Washington University. And I started by asking Chris if she thought the Borg were scary when she first saw them on television. 
I think they're still terrifying. <laughs> um, I was, you know, I was using our, our meeting today as a chance to, to brush up. And there's something about that, um, especially the, the shape of the ship and the fact that it shouldn't fly based on physics yeah. that we understand. And Did you rewatch First Contact, Chris? I, I did a highlight That's of First Contact. That's where they're super scary. Yeah. they're uh, um, played for scares. They're really sort of inscrutable and uncanny. And um, yeah. yeah, I think they're still super unsettling. Yeah. Yeah, I always thought that they were um, like malignant and not malicious. And that is Sean Taylor. He teaches at San Francisco State. And it mm-hmm. was just like, this will, This is cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like there's just nothing you can, I mean, there's nothing you can really do about this. I'm thinking like, if it was a real world situation, you would just have to like, all right, what do you want to assimilate first? My neck or my face? Like, I just have to give in. There's like not yeah. much more that I can do. There's something about that, just something that is relentless. Yeah. Yeah. They're like a for they're like cancer or a force of nature. And of course, they they turn the the power of the Federation uh on its head by basically saying, look, uh, you know, you guys sometimes assimilate cultures as well. And now we're going to do that to you, and you have no choice about it. Yeah, it really forced me to think about the Federation as colonizers. Yeah. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because the word uh, assimilation, you know, used to have a very positive connotation in in American culture. It was, you know, this part of the immigrant experience. Um, And now there's a lot of anxiety, obviously, on the right with xenophobia, but also on the left in terms of losing cultural identity. And and what are you losing? What are you assimilating to exactly? Do, Do you think the Borg taps into those anxieties? I think especially in terms of the power differential. Um, the notion that you have no control over what's taken, how it's taken, how it's going to be deployed. <clears throat> and rewatching that really poignant episode of Family where Jean-Luc goes back to Earth um, after his his trauma, after he's been attacked and um, violated and used, and he's so aware that he's been weaponized. Mm-hmm. Um, it's heartbreaking. She is referring to a series of episodes where Picard is assimilated by the Borg. And the Borg use him to try and destroy the Federation. I am Locutus, a Borg. Resistance is futile. Your life as it has been is over. From this time forward, you will service us. Eventually, the crew of the Enterprise is able to capture Picard and restore him but he never gets over the trauma of having been assimilated into the Borg. Again, Kevin Decker. I think the earliest Borg episodes make it very clear that it taps into a kind of body anxiety, right? Of taking over somebody else's body. Uh, They introduce the nanites, the Borg nanites that do the work from the inside. So I think apart from the cultural dimension, which we should talk about, which is really important, there is also this kind of visceral dimension of uh, the Borg using bodies uh, for their own purposes, regardless of of the the owners, if you will, uh, intentions. And it's just the, like the homogeneity of it. It's just you were these once vibrant, beautiful things, and now you're just this. You know, and as a son right. of immigrants, it's I mean, you know, assimilation was always a, like this battle in our right. household. Hmm. You know, change the accent. Don't use certain words. Be under the radar. Change your last name. Absolutely. Yeah. Just the erasure of autonomy. 
you are part of this one collective single mission, which on the surface looks pretty interesting. Like, okay, we're all you know geared towards this one thing, this one goal. But when that one goal is just just basically accumulation. Yeah. yeah, that seems to me that is something that really, to this day, I mean, when I teach a couple of episodes to my students and they're just like, this is, I mean, just because we have students now who are so hyper individualized with, you know, social media profiles and the rest to even like consider what does it mean to lose what you think is special is just horrifying to a lot of people. And especially to, I think, people who pride themselves in individuality. So, so you're talking about um, the body and merging technology with the body. Uh, I was thinking of the philosophy of transhumanism, which a lot of sort of Silicon Valley moguls like to present as this wonderful future. Where, well, if, I mean, our bodies are already merging with technology anyway with bionic limbs, um, but eventually we'll have implants in our brains where you can search Google with your mind and upload your memories to the cloud and hyperlink with each other. And I'm surprised more people don't say, oh, you mean like the Borg? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, maybe they will after your program. Episodes yeah, maybe they will. Or, or maybe the Borg. Yeah, maybe they've been too normalized. I don't know. The Borg. But does that tra- tap into transhumanism as well? Those Because that philosophy was certainly very much around in the 90s. Yeah, sure. Sean, you've done stuff on Afrofuturism. What's the what's the overlap there? I mean, for me, it's, what's, what's interesting with Afrofuturism in this discussion is that it's never about the merging of technology and the body it's a lot of the times it's about how to make technology more like the natural world hmm. so so there's more of a so there's more of a, a unison there as opposed to here's this giant hunk of machinery let's get to this where it's actually there there's some type of you know technological and biological parody and i think transhumanism is also really interesting and I must, it makes me wonder why the silicon valley people you know purport that because it seems like if you don't, it seems like they're trying to build a culture that they may be missing now because they seem very, it seems like mm-hmm. a very disconnected type of thing. Yeah. But what's missing now that you'd want to have that happen? I think with for Afrofuturism, since black people had so many things stripped from them, language and culture and everything else. So it's not about merging with, but it's about using technology as a reparative, not as a substitute. Our conversation will continue just after the break. Make 2020 a year where you explore new skills and get lost in creativity with Skillshare's online classes. The classes are designed for real life. They're short, so you can fit them into your busy schedule. And it's affordable. An annual subscription is less than $10 a month. Believe it or not, the class that I've been enjoying is called How to Make a Podcast. Plan, record, and launch with success. I mean, obviously, I already have a podcast. But there's always so much more for me to learn. And I found myself riveted as I was watching how the instructor edits his work, checking out what software he uses, and I enjoyed reading the feedback in the discussion section. Skillshare is a proud sponsor of Imaginary Worlds. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash imaginary and get two free months of premium membership. That's two whole months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. Get started and join today by heading to Skillshare.com slash imaginary. That's Skillshare.com slash imaginary.
Let's return to our philosophy roundtable about the Borg. The most famous storyline around the Borg is Picard's capture and assimilation. But the second most popular storyline on The Next Generation came from a single episode called I, Borg, where the Enterprise crew finds a wounded Borg and decides to take him on board for humanitarian reasons, which is a very controversial decision among the crew. And this Borg, the single Borg, begins to change because he is disconnected from the collective and is interacting with humans. What is your designation? Designation? Third of five. You mean our names? We don't have designations. We have names. I'm Beverly. This is Jordy. Do I have a name? Do you want one? A name? I'm Beverly. He's Jordy. And you... You. You. No, no, wait a minute. That's it. Hugh. Not everybody is won over by Hugh the Borg. The character of Guinan, who is played by Whoopi Goldberg, is still traumatized by the fact that the Borg assimilated most of the people on her home planet. But when she meets Hugh, she realizes that the Borg are capable of change. Picard is not convinced. In fact, he wants to implant a deadly virus in Hugh, and send him back to the Borg Collective like a Trojan horse. But when you talk to him face to face, can you honestly say you don't have any doubt? I haven't talked to it. Why not? I saw no need. If you're going to use this person... It's not a person, damn it, it's a Borg! If you are going to use this person to destroy his race, you should at least look him in the eye once before you do it because I am not sure he is still a Borg. Hugh is actually going to be in the new Picard series, although we don't know what he's been up to since The Next Generation. I asked Sean, Kevin, and Chris why they think that character resonated so deeply with the fans. The Hugh things remind me almost like how when someone's being deprogrammed from a cult, while they're in the cult, you may have certain ideas about it, but once they're, they, they, they get removed and having to reassimilate into, there's a word again, into the, their regular society, it's kind of like, oh, wow, you realize just what was done to them and how it was done. And then you, I think that's where the sympathy arises, the post-assimilation as opposed to, wow, they're part of the, the giant, the body of things. Yeah. And so um, Picard comes up with this idea of using Hugh to infect the rest of the Borg with a deadly virus. Would you say that that plan is genocide? Or is it a justifiable act of uh, self-defense or a, a sort of preemptive strike against an enemy that you can't negotiate with? I don't know that I would have been able to stop myself from enacting the plan. If I were, <laughs> I'm shifting I were Picard, my chair a little further away. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's moving away. I mean, I know, I know my limitations. And, you know, being a pragmatist, there is a problem to be solved in that circumstance. And the actual status as individuals or as personalities of the Borg that would be affected or killed, if you like, is is in dispute. Um, that's part of what makes the dramatic tension in I, Borg uh, happen. With Hugh, he's clearly a person. He's been rehabilitated or re-assimilated, at least temporarily. But with the rest of the Borg, I don't know. I mean, it depends on how expansively we want to uh, define genocide, obviously, we don't want to define away the possibility of genocide. It's important to keep that concept. Or how much mm -hmm. do you want to bring into account uh, Starfleet's own principles? Yeah. 
certain people, you know, the admiral who's ready to go for it, but then you wonder like, what, you know, what do the Vulcans think about it? Right. What do Andor, I mean, whoever else is part of the Federation, how are they going to think that? I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, are any genocides necessary? I mean, I think it might have been a necessary action, but it's still, I mean, you're taking out an entire species of people or maybe former people. Now, I guess then you have to ask the question, you know, I guess in you know, Federation, all life is, all sentient life is life, just, you know, whether it's organic or whether it's mechanical, but then you have to probably weigh the those interesting moral costs. Like if we get rid of these, you know, I don't think we ever have an idea of how many Borg there actually are. But if we get rid yeah. of them, like how much better will the rest of us be? Is it's kind of almost like a almost like a, a triage issue. Now, the biggest change to the Borg mythology was the introduction of the Borg Queen in the 1996 movie Star Trek First Contact. First Contact was the first film to focus exclusively on the next generation cast. And until that point, we only understood the Borg as a collective hive. But in kind of pushing that insect metaphor further, we learned that the Borg drones were actually controlled by a Borg queen, played by Alice Krieger. We were very close, you and I. You can still hear our song. Yes, I, I remember you. You were there all the time. But that ship... And all the bog on it were destroyed. You think in such three-dimensional terms. She was a more traditional villain for the Enterprise crew to fight. An evildoer that they could focus all their attention on. But the consensus among the group was that the Borg Queen actually made the Borg seem a little less scary. She is uh, almost an anti-Borg. She's not mm. just like a prime Borg. She's an anti-Borg. Um, she's so sensual. She's so individual. She has so much interiority. She manipulates data's interiority beautifully, um, almost successfully, one point. And then when you reread the Borg in retrospect, um, everything you've known about them since, you know, before 1996, does she explain things or just totally undermine things? Mm-hmm. It just seemed like there was, it was like, for me, it was just like, I get it. It was interesting. But part of me was wondering you know like the seduction of data and that entire thing i think it was cool to have him question himself but also it felt really kind of male gazy guys are like ah let's make something sexy right now for star trek because it has been sexy for a little bit and then they just made this where i think it kind of like took away the integrity of the board to, to me for a couple for that reason alone is because it seems more of a a, a, a sci-fi nerds fantasy of a sexy supervillain than it did to seem like it, to advance the story in any real way for me. I think what makes First Contact so interesting is that it is the culmination of Picard's angst over having been abducted and violated by the Borg. And the story in the movie is that the Borg have gone back to the 21st century to stop humanity when we were at an earlier stage of development. And in chasing the Borg back to the 21st century, Picard meets a character named Lily Sloan, who was played by Alfre Woodard. And Lily can see something pretty clearly that the rest of the Enterprise crew cannot. Picard has not processed his trauma. But she's not sympathetic at first. She worries that he's reckless, obsessed to the point of self-destruction. And not being a member of his crew, she can confront him directly about it. Get out! Off what? You'll kill me? Like you killed Ensign Lynch? 
There was no way to save him. You didn't even try. Where was your involved sensibility then? I don't have time for this. Oh, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your little quest. Captain Ahab has to go hunt his whale. Her reference to Moby Dick eventually brings Picard to his senses. Although she admits she actually never read the book, but she can recognize a Captain Ahab when she sees one. And Chris Vallejo always loved that scene. So it's six years since the um, since Picard was taken. By the time this Between. is in the show time, because yeah. I was just I was just revisiting that scene this morning, um, and it and that movie starts with the Enterprise being dispatched to patrol the neutral zone because the Admiral's pretty sure that Picard's a liability. Yeah. Once the bar the Borger in Federation space, he he's not allowed to engage. He's not allowed to bring their Enterprise into the battle, and so that that notion that he's that people are right about the fact that Picard is still vulnerable. And then I can't help but think, Sean, that Lily's the opposite of the queen, hmm. right? Like as much as I hear you say like, oh, here we go, a sexy enterprise. You know, one, she's still so mechanistic, the queen, the way she can look at the drones and they can do what she says and the way that her body is pieced together that way. Um, it's really, it's sort of disgusting and like the opposite of sexy. Um, and Lily is so much the opposite of the queen. She's unafraid. She swears like a sailor. Mm-hmm. Um, she's Alfred Woodard, which of course helps. She's she's someone who can hold the screen with Patrick Stewart, mm-hmm. and, and she hasn't even read the book. Yeah, right. Right, like right. her authority comes from someplace entirely different than the Queen, than Picard, than I mean, it's in some kind of really experiential mm-hmm. wisdom yeah. and insight that that character has. And so, like you know, how are we influential? Now, on the new TV show, there is going to be another former Borg character that will be having an influence on Picard, Seven of Nine, played by Jerry Ryan. Now, interestingly, she has not interacted with Picard before. She was introduced on a different TV series called Voyager, where Captain Janeway, played by Kate Mulgrew, was much more open to the idea of rehabilitating a Borg and making her part of the crew. Your designation, Seven of Nine, is a little cumbersome. Wouldn't you prefer to be called by your given name, Annika? I have been Seven of Nine for as long as I can remember. All right. But maybe we could streamline it a little. How would you feel about Seven? Imprecise, but acceptable. I asked the group what Seven of Nine added to the mythology of the Borg, but Chris responded with a different question I hadn't thought about. Did we see other Borg who were female besides the Queen? None of us could remember. I looked it up, and turns out Seven was introduced a year after the Borg Queen. Either way, Chris thought that was significant. There's some interesting constellations around our early reactions to the Borg, and and one is Guinan, who um, has experienced the same thing Seven of Nine has experienced, right? Her people have been annihilated. Um, she tries to warn Picard. And then you have Beverly sort of seeing their, insisting on their, if not humanity, at least beingness. Um, so I've been interested to sort of see what the relation is between femaleness and the Borg. I think you're, I think the most fascinating thing about what you said is that the range of reactions to the Borg is is more strongly represented by females in the various series than, than males. Huh. 
That's interesting. It's true that the men, I mean, except maybe Jordy, most of the men, their reaction is just to fight the Borg. Right. Is there anything else in science fiction we could compare the Borg to? I mean, the the one that comes to mind for me is the Cybermen on Doctor Who. But are there any others or are they just really unique in sci-fi? Maybe a slant parallel could be the Body Snatchers, the pod people from the Invasion of the Body Hmm. Snatchers. Yeah, that could be because one of the things, don't they like to do this? I think they did it in First Contact and maybe in a couple other episodes is one of the most horrific things about the Borg is to find somebody who had been serving on your ship, who has been assimilated and has been fighting on the other side now. And that's always a very poignant scene. So yeah, that's a body snatchers sort of moment there. I I have to say that as a big Doctor Who fan, the Cybermen are a great comparison, but they're relatively underdeveloped, I think, in relationship to the Borg. And more recently, they've just been played up for the kind of body horror of knowing that if you're cyberized or whatever they call it, your brain is taken out of your body and put into a metal skeleton. And they've been riding on that since like the mid 80s, basically. That's the most horrifying thing about the Cybermen. But they haven't developed any personalities or any politics around the Cybermen. It's kind of unfortunate. Yeah. Most sci-fi really has a villain problem where most of the villains aren't like scary. They're maniacal, but a lot of the times they aren't really scary. The Borg is is, is scary. <laughs> I mean, when we <laughs> think about like, yes, you know, as, as um, <clears throat> Kevin was saying, that was Ensign Johnson a week ago. And now I probably have to mm-hmm. kill him so yeah. I can stay alive. I mean, those type of like those type of the you know the moral questions the board brings up, they're just malignant. They're you know you can't even touch them. I mean, and the thing is, you know, what's even scarier is your fight or flight response is directly linked to how you react to the Borg. And if you fight, they're gonna get you. Yeah. There's something about that that is, I mean, scarier than most sci-fi villains. I guess I would wonder. I, I'm a little stuck in our in our um, Moby Dick world right now, but there's something about their inscrutability, both as a block and as individuals who who just look like machines who whose interiors you can no longer detect, that I think invites us to project our fears and onto them. And anytime we're doing that, that's a chance for human error and misstep. So the immensity, the inscrutability, that's why, that's why they're like the whale, right? That that Picard can heap upon them everything that he's been not dealing with for six years and and at some point it's it's past what what the actual any kind of actual reckoning mm-hmm. or weighing of insults right like it's it's he's become something through this experience and through his inability to process the experience that has has changed him in dangerous ways it's a little bit of like the kobayashi maru right yeah, like right. what do we do with an unbeatable yeah. threat and what do we become in our interactions with them, because the unbeatable threat's always going to be out there in the human yeah. experience. And in some ways, we are more dangerous to ourselves and what we become than, than the threat is to us. Last month, I did a two-part episode on villains. And I think the Borg are perfect villains for Star Trek because they directly challenge the ethos of the show. So the heroes in Star Trek often try to see the humanity, or what we humans would call humanity, in every species. But how do you deal with a species like the Borg? Do you tolerate their existence, even though they are intolerant of everything that you value? Or do you fight them? And if you do, where do you draw the line? The Borg have the power to turn you into a monster, 
But if you resort to the most extreme tactics to stop them, if you lose your sense of humanity in the process, then they will have turned you into a different kind of monster. And it raises the importance of what Star Trek incites so well, which is a moral imagination, right? If if it's what do we do if we don't, what are, what are we go- willing to do if we do, then moral imagination, I think, is really required to figure out where the middle ground is between those two points. Well, that is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Kevin Decker, Sean Taylor, and Christina Vallejo. My assistant producer is Stephanie Billman. You can like the show on Facebook. I tweet at Emilinski at Imagine Worlds Pod. The show's website is imaginaryworldspodcast.org. <laughs>